Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning again. uh, Welcome again, at least virtually, to Oak City Church. My name is Ken Cantrell. I'm one of the elders here at Oak City. And... I'm glad. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and to see you at least virtually once again. If you have any questions about Oak City Church or you want to follow up on the sermon, I would love to follow up with you, and you're more than welcome to reach out to me. I'm not actively serving on the elder body at the moment, though, so if you send email to elders at oakcitychurch.com, I won't see it. But you can send email to ken, K-E-N, at oakcitychurch.com, and I will. We're in a series that we're calling Connecting the Dots. And it's based on a 100-day reading plan designed to give a good overview of God's story as told through Scripture. So if you're not already reading along with us in the plan, I would encourage you, you can start just right now. The plan is easy. It doesn't require a very big time investment. You can find all the information for the plan on our website. But please pay attention. That plan, at least on the YouVersion Bible app, is a seven-day plan, and we are treating it as a five-day plan. So if you follow the dates in the app, you're going to be reading the wrong stuff. So uh, you can find the right dates on our website, in the newsletter, and hopefully your home group leaders, if you're in a home group, are sending you that information as well. Tomorrow, you should be starting with day 31, the book of 1 Samuel. This is also a great time just to say, uh, if you're not in a home group, this is a great time to join a home group. Our home group should all be moving through this material And I think that's probably the best place to discuss this and be able to dive in deeper both to the readings and to the sermons. So our reading this week was from the Old Testament books of Judges and Ruth. Ruth is a a great book, but I'm going to focus mainly on Judges for this sermon. So like I said, we call this sermon, or the series, Connecting the Dots, and I want to connect the dots for you in two ways today. First off, I want to try to connect the dots in terms of just helping us all understand these stories in the scope of the Bible and world history. So these stories are real stories about real people in real places at a real time in history. But sometimes I think they feel more like children's stories or mythologies. So my goal is to help them be a bit more concrete and help you connect with them. Then I want to try to connect the dots in terms of God's bigger story. Like, what's the purpose for these stories in the Bible, and how do we make sense of them? So we'll end with two big ways that I see the story of Judges fitting into that much bigger story. So what's the story so far? Here is the super summarized version. Our story begins even before creation, because it begins with the reality of a God and a God that exists outside of our concepts of time and space. This God created everything. And that's important because He is the Creator and we are the created. And in the beginning, everything was good. Not just good, everything was very good. We were in perfect harmony with our God and we were in perfect harmony with the world around us. And I think that sounds a little bit like a fantasy, but the Bible teaches it and I believe it to be true history. Now, that's creation. In a summary, that's the first book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2. 
But unfortunately, things go downhill starting in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, we see what we call the fall. Adam and Eve reject God's authority. They reject His love. And in doing so, they break everything. Like literally, their act of rebellion changes the very fabric of reality. It's because of the fall that work is a toil, that childbirth is painful, that death exists, or even that we get sick. The fall is to blame for destructive hurricanes, for mosquitoes, and the fact that when they bite us, we hate it. I hate mosquitoes. Uh, For the fact that we feel shame, or even the fact that we need to feel shame. But in chapter 3, we also see hope, because we see God clothe His children and give a promise that a day will come when God Himself will send a Redeemer to destroy death. We see a promise that God will make things right. That begins the story of redemption, and Adam and Eve tell that story to their kids, and they tell it to their kids, and at least 3,000 years since it was first written down, we continue to tell that story. So that's where we started. Five or six weeks ago, we started with creation. For the last five weeks now, we've been working out from there. So we've covered Noah and the Tower of Babel and Abraham and Jacob and Esau and Joseph, the Israelite captivity in Egypt, Moses and the Exodus, the start of the conquest of the land of Canaan, and then finally this week, the time and the book of Judges. So let's start with, what's a judge? Well, when I think of a judge, I think of an old sitcom my parents watched called Night Court, but that's probably not what you think of. My guess is you're thinking of a man or a woman in a black robe who's legislating justice. And there is some aspect of that. But largely, the judges in the book of Judges are military leaders that God has supernaturally gifted or placed in a place to redeem the Israelites and save them when they're under captivity or or oppression in some way. Now, there's definitely the legislating justice that goes around because some of them ruled for 40 or 80 years. And after they rescue the Israelites, they do judge, right, and mediate disputes and so forth. But largely what we're looking at are military leaders. They're also regional leaders. So I don't think there's any of the judges that ruled all of Israel for sure So usually they're judging like the north part of Israel or the south part of Israel, and there's some overlap between them. That's not really clear from reading the book, but there's some overlap. So you might have two of them judging at the same time, just in different parts of Israel. So that's a judge, what's going on in the book of Judges. So we'll flesh this out a bit more as we go on, but to get us started, Jeff, our lead pastor, gave me this analogy on Friday. I thought it was fantastic. If Moses is George Washington and Joshua is Lewis and Clark, then the time of the judges is the wild, wild west. So the wild, wild west, the time of judges, is a two to four hundred year period between Joshua and Saul, Israel's first king. And it's, it's a crazy time, because as the author of the book says, not once, but twice, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the rule of the day. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So our readings focused this week on what we might call maybe the safer and well-known stories of the judges. We looked at Deborah and Gideon and Samson. 
And those, they may not seem like crazy stories. But to get us started, let me briefly fill in some gaps in some of those stories that you may have missed and give you one more that our reading didn't cover. Like I said, just to help you have a feeling for the time and see how maybe even our heroes aren't quite what we would expect. So let's start with Ehud. He was one of the judges that our reading skipped over this week. Ehud led the Israelites out of oppression from the Moabites, and then he judged Israel for 80 years. This is how he started the revolt. So the Israelites had to send their tribute to their Moabite overlords, and they sent it directly to the Moabite king, King Eglon. Ehud managed to get the job of carrying that tribute, and um, we're told he's a lefty, and he manages to sneak a short sword in with him strapped to his right thigh. Well, he somehow convinces Eglon that he has a secret that he has to share, and he gets in private, and he gets a one-on-one audience with the king. And in the rest of the story, honestly, it's a little weird to tell in church, but um, King Eglon is a very fat man, and when they're together alone, Ehud pulls out his sword and jams it into the king's stomach so far that even the hilt is hidden by the king's fat. And then he just walks out. He doesn't get caught <laughs> because when he killed the king, the king lost bowel control, and his servants thought he was just having a really long and a really stinky sit-down. Um, seriously, like read the story. It's Judges chapter 4. Let's skip ahead a little bit to Gideon. So if you've been in Sunday school before, you probably know the story of Gideon. Gideon is the youngest member of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe in Israel. If, if you don't count the Levites, that was a tribe of priests. Um, and it begins with him threshing wheat in a wine press. Basically, this is a job he should have been doing out in the open, but he's doing it in a, a hiding place because he's scared of the Midianites. They're the ones who are oppressing Israel at that time. So the angel of the Lord appears to him, calls him a mighty man of valor. He's like, what? You realize I'm hiding, right? And the angel of the Lord tells him, deliver Israel. And then we get an amazing story of how the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He gathers a huge army. God says, whoa, 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 that's too many. And he has Gideon send over 30,000 of them away. And then we read about how Gideon defeats the Midianites with only the 300 that are left. By sneaking up to them at night, they're holding extra lanterns and they're holding horns, and they, they do all this, to, they blow the horns to make the Midianites think there's a bunch more of them than there are. Which is a little ironic, in a way, that first God sends all these people away because he has too many, and then his plan is to make it look like he has more than he has. But it's a great story. It's good stuff. Your Sunday school versions probably leave out, though, the part where when he's chasing down the bad guys, he stops in the town of Sukkoth to ask for food because his 300 people are tired and they're hungry, and the town members are too afraid to give it to him. And that makes sense because he hasn't destroyed the Midianites yet, and the members of the town are thinking, well, if we give you food and then you lose, then we're going to get a beatdown. And so Gideon tells them, well... When the Lord has given Zeba and Zamuna, that's the bad guys he's chasing, into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And then he proceeds to do exactly that. Or, after he wins the battles and he judges Israel for 40 years, he ends up having at least 70 sons, 
all his own kids because we're told, quote, he had many wives and that he has at least one other son from a concubine. And the Sunday school version probably leaves out that his illegitimate son kills 69 of the 70 other sons because he wants to rule after Gideon dies. Why are these kind of things happening? Because this is a time when they had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's look last quickly at the story of Samson. So he's the last of the judges that's discussed in the book of Judges, and he's another Sunday school favorite. The Sunday school version tells us that God commanded Samson to never cut his hair. And as long as he didn't, he was crazy strong, like Hercules strong. But he fell in love with a woman named Delilah. She tricks him, finds out the secret of his strength, cuts off his hair, and then sells him to the Philistines. There's the bad guys at this time. They poke out his eyes. By the way, this is the kids' version that we tell in Sunday school. But they poke out his eyes, and then they had him grind at a mill in prison until they forget about the miracle of his hair, pull him out, tie him to the pillars of a temple, or a, a, I guess the pillars of a temple um, as part of a religious festival so they can laugh at him. He prays that God would give him strength just one more time. God does, and then he pulls down the pillars, killing himself and killing everybody else in the temple. But that includes the Philistine rulers, so that's how Samson saves the Israelites from the Philistines. That Sunday school version, it leaves out quite a bit too, though. Like the fact that he ignored his parents and he searched out his first wife from among his enemies. Then he ended up basically leaving her at the altar because he was mad at her and mad at her family. And then he came back for her later but found out that her dad had given her to the best man from his wedding. Or that he was almost caught by the Philistines once because he was off visiting a prostitute. Or that he was almost certainly sleeping with Delilah that he was not married to. That was the woman who eventually tricked him and cut off his hair. He, and really... Everybody else in that story are deeply flawed individuals, and he particularly is a man ruled by his passions. This is a time when people are doing what is right in their own eyes. So, how do we get to this place? Like, how do we get to a place where this is how people are thinking and this is how people are acting? I think to understand the judges, it helps to understand the times. So very quickly, I want to jump back about 100 years to the time of the Exodus, and then we're going to work our way quickly forward again, real quick. So most of the biblical story takes place here in the Middle East. That's the red square. Now, zooming in, this is Egypt over on the left-hand side, on the south side of the Mediterranean, and that's where the Israelites start their journey to what we call Canaan, the Promised Land. That's that green polygon I have over on the right. So Canaan had been ruled or managed, it had been settled for a very long time. And for the past hundred years or more, it had been ruled by Egypt. But at this point, at the point of the Exodus, Egypt has lost control of the land of Canaan. And it's basically, basically just a loose collection of city-states. There's some anarchy going on, on uh, inside, and astoundingly, there are almost no external threats. This was a land uniquely prepared by God for the Israelites. So what happened to Egypt's control? To understand that, we have to jump out just a little bit more. 
there was a group that the Egyptians referred to as the people of the sea or the sea people. They had been flowing down out of Greece, a huge population explosion. They had taken over Cyprus, they had taken over Crete, and then they had been attacking the general land of Canaan and the land of Egypt. And the Egyptian focus was far, far more on taking them out than it was on maintaining control of Canaan. And they did. Right about the same time as the Exodus, there's a huge naval battle, and Egypt basically destroys the power of the people of the sea. But not before two things happen. One, like I said, Egypt pretty much lost control of Canaan. And two, the Philistines managed to put some fortified cities along the coastline, both in Canaan and the area kind of leading up to it. That explains this crazy purple path, which is the basic path, at least as my freehand can do it, that the Israelites took in their exodus from Egypt. You'd think that, that the best line would be go right up the coast, but, but God's no dummy, right? Remember that at this point, the Israelites are basically a group of escaped slaves. They are not a battle-hardened people. They've not had 40 years in the desert to toughen them up. And so God has them go south and makes them wander around. And there's another reason, too. I didn't know this. This was pretty cool to me. The Philistines are an Iron Age culture, and the Israelites are actually still a Bronze Age culture. So they were definitely not ready to attack. So God has them wander around for a while, wander around actually for a really long time, for 40 years. That's what John, our executive pastor, touched on a bit last week. And so they finally get to Canaan. When they finally get to Canaan, they come to this dot over, over on the right-hand side. That's Mount Nebo. And here Moses was able to look into the promised land but not enter. And Joshua, his successor, leads them into the promised land to that dot on the left. That's Jericho. That was their first major battle, and they start to settle the land of Canaan. And by settle, what I mean is they virtually divide up the land to, into a part for every tribe, and the tribes start to spread out and conquer the land of Canaan. Most of their effort as they start is in the hill country. They're avoiding those Philistines with their Iron Age culture down on the shoreline. So it's in the hill country, and they're wildly successful to start. So as Joshua begins and Judges begins, there's a lot going on. Joshua doesn't name a successor. So for the first time since leaving Egypt, the Israelites have no central leadership. They have a mission, a powerful mission. Take over Canaan. Utterly destroy the people who are there. Push them out. And they have another mission. Stay true to their God, a jealous God who says, you will have no other gods before me. I am your God and only me. But it's hard to hold them together. There are 12 distinct tribes. Each one is off trying to settle and take over their own portion of Canaan. They get to meet together a few times a year at a place called Shechem for religious festivals, but you know, there's no WhatsApp or Zoom or telephone or internet, so it's hard to stay connected. They're also a generation of nomads and warriors coming into a land of farming and shepherding. It's only been recently that they've stopped getting manna. For 40 years in the desert, God provided them all of their food. They never had to learn how to take care of themselves in terms of food. It wasn't until they took over Jericho that God stopped giving them manna. So, as they destroy cities and they start to take them over, they're also transitioning to this stationary culture, and they're having to learn how to build cities or rebuild them and how to farm. 
They are supposed to be leaning on God for all of this. But instead, they start to depend upon the Canaanites a bit in the land, adopting their practices and adopting their gods. Now, it might not be super obvious why adopting Canaanite farming practices would mean adopting the religion. But the Canaanite religion was a fertility religion that tightly connected successful crops with sex. So by engaging in sex through temple prostitution and so forth, they believed that they would encourage the gods to make fertile land and have good crops. Those things were super tightly connected. Like that's what it meant to be a good farmer was to participate in this religion. And so as the Israelites picked up those agricultural practices, they also had a tendency to pick up the false religion. So, Judges, finally Judges. Judges is the story of the Israelites spiraling down from this really high place of success under Joshua to one of their greatest lows. Joshua chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, begin with the death of Joshua, and they summarize a lot of the book. So, let's look there to see how Scripture describes this. It begins like this, and all that generation, this was the generation that was alive when Joshua was alive, were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So he sold them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them over to the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they would march out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned them, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges. The judges saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, but they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they, this generation, didn't do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, there's a cycle here, okay? And the cycle repeats pretty much the same for the 12 judges, like Samson or Delilah or Ehud that we talk about in the book. There's a period of peace. Then there's a generation that doesn't follow God, and that generation does evil, and God allows them to be oppressed. Then the people cry out for help, and God sends a rescuer, a judge to them, like Ehud. The judge saves them, and then you rinse and repeat this for two to four hundred years across the lives of, the tw- of around twelve judges. Thirteen if you count the judge who's in the next book. So, some folks will ask a question like, why? Why is this book here? Like, why is the book of Judges in the Bible? What am I supposed to learn from this? And that's a great question. Part of the answer is to realize that Judges is not primarily meant as a guidebook for living. 
it is a largely descriptive book. It describes the way that things were. It's not, at least mostly, meant to be a prescriptive book. It's not meant to tell us what to do. There are great moments of faith and obedience in the book. Deborah trusting God to deliver the Israelites or her acknowledging God as their deliverer in her poem right afterwards. Those are fantastic. But when you read this week about Jael driving a tent peg through the head of Sisera, or Samson deciding that he wants a foreign wife, or Samson deciding he wants a prostitute, those are not really there to tell you what you ought to get up and go do tomorrow. So why should we read the book of Judges? Or maybe... What can we take away from it? How does this book of Judges fit into God's big story? There's lots of answers to this question. One of the churches I looked at had over 30 sermons out of the book of Judges. I want to look at two that came up to me. The first one starts with this. This is from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Have you ever wondered why we didn't just jump directly from the Garden of Eden to Jesus? Why do we have all this time in the middle? So there's, there's nothing that unambiguously states this, but I believe that God worked through history the way He did to show us that there is no other way for us to be saved other than Jesus. In Bible terms, we are a stubborn, stiff-necked people, and we needed hundreds, if not thousands of years to see that no other option works. Well, works for what? Well, to fix the problems from the fall. Remember, the fall broke everything, and that, that means us, too. We aren't who we are supposed to be, and we know that. I, I don't think I really have to prove this to anyone. Bookstores full of self-help books pretty much prove it, right? Why, why would we need so much help if we were perfect? We all know that there is something wrong with us, that we and this world are not who we're meant to be. So the question really isn't, is something wrong? It's, why is it wrong, and how do we make it better? And I think that most of the world will tell you that you can be the person you ought to be if you only have the right attitude, or the right time, or the resources, or the right circumstances. But that is... That is so not the history of our world. What is the history of our world? Well, go back again to the garden, or right after it. After the garden, God is present in the world in, in some way, but it's not entirely clear how. There's no real sense of priests or temples or well-defined worship or really any clear set of rules. Where do we end up? We end up in a world where Genesis 6-5 says, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth." and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as a result, he destroyed every family on earth except for Noah's. You would think that something like that would drive people back to him and demonstrate for all time just how serious sin is. But it's like almost the first thing after that is Noah gets drunk and his son shames him. We spend a period of time after that, where God allows mankind to work together. And that leads us to the Tower of Babel and the thought that we, can, we, like all mankind, can outdo God. 
So God confuses language. He spreads us apart, but that doesn't drive us to him. He takes a people to himself and gives Abraham and his descendants a renewed promise and a vision, but that doesn't drive us, all of mankind, to him. He lets Israel spend 400 years as slaves. That doesn't turn us to him. He gives Israel the law, a perfect tutor to tell us through all the ages what it means to be his people. But that only shows us the depth of our sin. That doesn't drive us to him. During Israel's wandering in the desert, he gave them 40 years of his presence, a pillar of fire during the night, a pillar of smoke during the day. He says, follow me. And he gives them manna. But the Israelites continually turn away from him, just like we would. Here in Judges, we see a people with the law, with a mission, with a vision, and a recent history of God working visibly in their midst. But over 200, 400 years, we just watch them spiral down, down, down. Over the next few weeks, we'll see that having a king doesn't drive us, like all of mankind, to him. Having success didn't drive us to him. Having prophets didn't drive us to him. Israel being sent into exile doesn't drive us to him. Having God go quiet for like the 400 years, apparently between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, doesn't drive us to him. Nothing in the history of the world, no set of circumstances, has ever brought us to the place of true reconciliation with God except for Christ. Nothing has ever killed sin. Nothing has ever brought life. I I think that God had to allow us this opportunity to experience every other possibility so we couldn't say, but God, if, if only this had happened, we would have grown up and been the people we know we're meant to be. All of history, including the period of the judges, leads to Jesus because the clear message of Scripture is that we cannot, we will not be the people we are meant to be on our own. God must fulfill His promise to send a Savior, a Redeemer, to save us from ourselves. And that Redeemer is Jesus. So I think that's the big part that Judges plays in this story. It's yet another variation to demonstrate to us just how stubborn, how disobedient, and how broken we are by letting us see just how stubborn, disobedient, and broken Israel was. And then how desperately We all need a Savior. And all the the little stories of Judges, they tell that story too. Because we're just like the Israelites. And not not even at a generational level or like a multi-year level, but like in a day-by-day and a week level, we continually turn away from our Creator and He continually shows us grace and mercy and saves us from ourselves. So I think that's, that's one big takeaway. The second takeaway I want to share is this. And... If you've been with Oak City for a while, it turns out I've actually preached on Judges before back in 2016, and I preached this. So uh, I liked it then, I like it now, so we're going to use it one more time. This will be the second major point. It starts with this. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So this is chapter 2, verse 10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So a while ago, I heard somebody say that we're never more than two generations away from losing the gospel. 
they painted a generational picture that looked like this. And I'll, I'll explain a lot more about this as we go along. That there's generation one, the generation of the explicit gospel. And then generation two, the generation of an assumed gospel. And then generation three, the generation of a lost gospel. So as I go through this, I suspect that you'll identify with one of these generations more than the other. You might hear this and think, well, I'm generation three, but uh, it's really confusing for me to think about it that way. So I'm just going to say we're all generation one for the purposes of walking through this. In this picture, we, generation one, were taught the gospel very explicitly, and we speak of the gospel very explicitly. We get it. Um, We understand how the reality of God being made flesh and becoming our ultimate rescuer changes everything. And we've even passed along many of these values to the next generation. But if there's a generation two, it's because we failed to pass on the idea that they also must be explicit about this. They're generation two, the assumed gospel generation. A pastor, Matt Chandler, says this about this assumed gospel. Those who live life under the banner of an assumed gospel navigate the waters of life with an underlying foundation that is personal and meaningful. That's good. That's good. An assumed gospel often means that a person deeply values the gospel and tries to live life according to the gospel. That's really, really good. But issue with an assumed gospel is that it is often too personal and therefore becomes private. The person who lives under the assumption of the gospel often knows how it relates to their life, but nobody else does. Their kids never see how the gospel affects decisions or arguments or finances. Their neighbors never hear of that hope that's within. Their coworkers are left to wonder about what makes that person different. Those who live underneath the assumed gospel often find it awkward to bring it up and to talk about the work of Christ. Why? Well, because they never bring it up, and they never learn to articulate the implication of Christ's work in their life. So what happens next? Their kids, generation three, are likely to be a generation without the gospel at all. They're a generation focused on actions, but they don't know the motivations the reasons behind those actions. The good news, the gospel is gone. So I see this in a non-church context in my life. So I grew up in a household that hunted, mostly birds of some sort, duck and geese and turkey, pheasant, uh, dove and quail. Uh, I don't think I ever went to school on September 1st because that's the first day of dove season in Missouri. Through this, my dad gave me a great love for hunting, but also this deep sense of appreciation for how God provides for us and the beauty of the world He made and how we're meant to be good stewards of it. I love hunting, but in Missouri, we had access to hundreds if not thousands of acres of private land, and I'm terrified of getting shot, and so I don't hunt here because I don't have access to private land. And I haven't taken my kids hunting since I've been in North Carolina. I realize that I've assumed that my kids have many of the same values that I do here, including an appreciation for hunting itself. But I've rarely cultivated those explicitly in them. And when I do, it's words because I haven't taken them hunting. 
in one more generation, I suspect that the appreciation for hunting will be gone in my family line. They don't hunt. And so they're unlikely to pass the merits of that on to their own kids. I think it's likely that when the crises were passed, the Israelites became ho-hum in their faith and in their teaching. Generation one failed to pass on the importance of an explicit faith to their kids. Their kids never really knew trials. They never experienced a wholesale turning to God. And their parents weren't teaching them the basics of the faith in such a way as to make it real. Their parents likely did a lot of assuming about what their kids knew and what their kids valued, but that just didn't survive the test of time. But this isn't about biological generations. This is about generations of believers. So for those of you that are discipling, whether these are your kids or they're somebody else, how are you passing along your faith? How explicit are you about passing along your faith? Are you teaching them on a regular basis, not just how to act and what to do, but the motivation behind it? Are you teaching the gospel itself? I think the gospel is so incredibly easy to forget and to take for granted. So I've been asked before, why does preaching at Oak City center so much on the gospel? Why don't you spend more time being practical and talking explicitly about like marriage advice or financial advice, for example. And I think that's because the gospel is so incredibly non-intuitive, we have to hear it over and over and over again to really let it sink in. And the gospel is the basis for all that other stuff, and we'll pick up that other stuff. But we're trying to make sure that we're always a generation one church building a generation one church that's building a generation one church. So in that vein, about being explicit about the gospel, I think there's a very clear gospel story in the book of Judges. Namely, we are meant to be turning to God on a daily basis for the big stuff and the little stuff. There's a lot of differences between our situation and the situation of the Israelites. But one of the biggest is that God didn't ultimately just send a rescuer, He became a rescuer. He didn't just send a rescuer, He became a rescuer. The Israelites were really focused, I think, on the here and now, and like how to get underneath the thumb of their oppressors. And that's, that's not bad, right? God is a rescuer, and He does want us to turn to Him for both the big things and the little things. But the wars and the battles of Judges are in many ways, I think, meant to point us to a bigger struggle, a struggle between us and sin, and to point us to Jesus Christ, our ultimate rescuer. That big war, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that big war between us and sin, it is already won. That doesn't mean that the daily battles are over, but the coming of of Jesus was the death of our bondage to sin. What's happening now is... These are just the skirmishes with the parts of our lives that haven't gotten the message yet. That big message of the Bible, the message of our need for Jesus, how God has rescued us from sin, and the place that we now have as His church, that's the message that we can't afford to lose and that we have to continue to be very, very explicit about. And I think that's a message worth taking away from the book of Judges. Will you pray with me?
Father God, you are great and an awesome God. And I thank you for judges and every other part of Scripture that teaches us who you are and teaches us about our need for you. I ask God that through judges and all of your word, that you would make it clear to us just how much we need you, that you would save us from ourselves, transform us, God, uh, give us hope for life eternal. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.